All right, welcome back to the Act Two podcast, a podcast for the real life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I'm Josh Hallman. And we have a really awesome episode today that I think we all need right now. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, just a reminder to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any of our upcoming topics. Uh, give us a rating, write a comment, tell us we're doing terribly or that we're doing great. And if you'd rather DM us, you can send us questions or topic suggestions at act2writers at gmail.com. That's all spelled out. Or on our Instagram at act2writers. We're also on the social medias. We're everywhere. (laughs) You can find me on Instagram at Story Thursday and on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. And you can find me on Instagram at Josh Hallman and Twitter at Joshua Hallman. And real quick, I took Twitter off of my phone because it may have turned into a problem. I was just scrolling and scrolling, and it was great. My life was amazing. Hmm. And with the politics, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a rough world out there. I've definitely been sucked in recently and probably could benefit from taking it off my phone as well. Yeah. But you can still reach us <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> We'll still be there. All right. So we're talking about something that is very near and dear to Joshua's heart. (laughs) And he's been wanting to do this episode for a while. And I think this week, we're actually recording this during the week of the inauguration. So it feels like the right episode to be doing right now. Josh, what are we talking about? Tasha, today we're talking about hope. And... Yes, I always kind of pester you with this idea. I'm always, I feel like I'm like, hey, we should talk about the struggles and persevering and this and that. And it's always the same kind of like theme circling all these different general ideas. And I love it. I I feel like this is something that's really important. There's this old um, German saying that has always stuck with me. It is hope dies last. And it resonates with me, I think it resonates in all walks of life, especially here in the entertainment world. Sometimes hope is all we have. And, yeah. uh, you know, I believe like when hope goes, you just, you go, that's it. Oh, so that's man. what we're talking about today. But we're talking about- How like did you make it sound thing. depressing? <laughs> <laughs> so if you have hope, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's funny because you always- you always turn to hope as a theme in movies as well. I feel like that's always the classic pitch. It's like, shit, what is this movie about? It's about hope. And you're like, all it's right, I'm in. Hope. I'm in if it's about hope. Who doesn't like hope? <laughs> that's it. I just want happiness. I just want positive, And I want hope. That's it. That's what I want my stories to be about. None of this real life depressing shit. <laughs> so a couple things we're going to talk about is some really huge success stories in our business that um, are about hope, that are kind of a a study in how to struggle as a screenwriter and how to overcome those struggles. But I also feel like there are stories where you and I have lost hope and somehow managed to crawl our way back. And I think those stories are important too. But how do you want to start this? Well, so how about I dive in? By the way, so this is what we're going to do here. We have these two different people with their different stories, and we're going to kind of tie them into how you know they relate to hope. Relate to hope. We just said that, and I know I'm about to do my thing, 
And then you're going to come and swoop in and I'm going to listen to you say it. And I'm like, wow, that's how I should have presented my thing. <laughs> you don't know. Yours could be fantabulous. Probably I'll be will jealous. be. I'll be jealous of your story. All right. We each had a homework assignment. We're going to see how we all did. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this is who I'm talking about, Tasha. George Lucas. George freaking Lucas. The creator and of hope, basically. The, the, don't step on my, my thing. Sorry, fuck. <laughs> the creator of hope, George Lucas. <laughs> okay, we obviously know who George Lucas is. And the reason why we're talking about him is not only is he the creator of hope, but at one point in time, and I think a lot of people know this, so I'm going to do a, I'm going to put a different spin on this, but I know that, uh, you know, he was a young guy out of USC at one point, and when he started to work on Star Wars, there were a lot of ups and downs. And basically, I just want to touch on the idea of kind of how he held his hope, how he persevered. And if he didn't, what would we have today? We'd have nothing. Nothing. So I'm going to begin with, the, uh, with saying that multiple studios passed on the idea of Star Wars. He did American Graffiti. He, he's now at this point where he wants to do this space opera and... George Lucas is here, and multiple studios are passing on the idea of Star Wars, including Disney, which is really ironic at this point. And <laughs> so Lucas then ends up securing this deal with 20th Century Fox to write and direct Star Wars. So just to start, going from the rough outline to the final script, it took many, many years, and the earlier drafts of Star Wars are almost unrecognizable to us diehard fans, pretty much anyone. I wrote these down that Luke Skywalker was a grizzled old general originally. Hmm. Han Solo was a frog-like alien. Huh. There's a main character named Kane Starkiller, and the dark side of the force is called the Bogan. Wow. So I bring that up also just to kind of, you know, point out that drafts change. You're gonna have a freaking vomit draft. And Lucas's very good friend, Francis Ford Coppola, he basically said that like this original draft sucked. He read it. He was like, this is terrible. Lucas had a partner named Gary Kurtz, and he was like, this is terrible. He described it as gobbledygook. And I wrote that down because that word is very funny to me. <laughs> so Lucas goes through these multiple, multiple drafts, and he actually had this really interesting quote I wrote down. And he said, it's always been what you call a very good idea in search of a story. And I really like mm. that. I think a lot of writers can relate, to, or can relate to that. I super relate to that. And I feel like a lot of producers get scared of the development process at that stage where you're like, I don't have the story, but trust me, like this is going to be a really great idea. And I think this yes. is, that quote alone is like evidence that that's just how sometimes the writing brain works. I love that. Yeah, it's awesome. So he's grinding, he's going through his drafts. Of course, the story evolves. And when he did his, uh, it wasn't until he did his third draft that he hired an artist to do paintings of various scenes. These paintings, when he showed them to 20th Century Fox, that was pretty much the inspiration for uh, 20th Century Fox to say, here's $8 million, go make the film. So Lucas, he goes through all these drafts, the struggles, he finally gets the- Wait, uh, stop for a second. Yeah. This is this is our visuals and pitch episode right here and why you should do visuals in a pitch. <laughs> I know, I'm trying to tie everything. I'm basically doing the uh, the whole Rolodex of the Act 2 podcast is coming out right here. <laughs> all right, sorry to interrupt. That's amazing. Okay, 
I should also say that 20th Century Fox said, yeah, they came in. They're like, we're going to give you eight million. Lucas and his partner, Kurtz, were like, no, we need more money. And they were like, no. But they said, fine, eight million. Obviously, it's eight million dollars, which isn't even that much for this kind of movie back in the uh, 70s. Let's just keep that in mind. So they start shooting. They're in production. Lucas, uh, you know, he's still going through multiple drafts while they're shooting. Luke's name uh, changes, obviously, from Starkiller to uh, from Starkiller to Skywalker. He changed the title. Uh, he would continue to tweak the script during filming. He added the death of Obi-Wan Kenobi after realizing he served no purpose in the ending of the film. Also, just kind of throwing that in because that's really cool. And it's a reminder that you should condense characters or just get rid of characters if they're not serving a purpose. Because a lot of times when you're writing, you have these characters that you're like, these are fucking awesome. And then you realize you don't need them. And as your boy Joss Whedon says, you have to kill your babies. I like the idea of literally killing them in the course of the movie because we talked about this in the Pixar episode where like, hey, you have to think about just trimming back, maybe combining characters. If I see a character in my script that sort of doesn't serve a purpose, I try to get rid of them and combine them. I don't think about ways to actually literally kill them in my story, which is great. You should do that. That's actually a great note because (laughs) that's a way to create drama while also getting rid of a story problem. Dude, we're going to just kill you off because... (laughs) We don't think you're serving a good purpose after the first act. (laughs) You're done. You were great back then, but you're not so good in act three. So, um, so he's shooting the film. He has some bumps. He's, you know, he's still like, he's in production. It's kind of a little rocky. He's still rewriting the script early on. And, uh, something that I found this little fun anecdote was, more about Brian De Palma. He told Lucas that he was completely out of his mind with the opening crawl because apparently Lucas's original opening crawl was just so long that everyone was like freaking out. Like, dude, what are you doing? You can't have this opening crawl so long. So De Palma (laughs) helped him rewrite it. And I think these are things I already knew, but just kind of hearing it again, it was fun. And it's also, again, the reminder that things just keep on changing in all of your drafts. Mm -hmm. So here's where it gets interesting. While they're filming, uh, Lucas, he starts experiencing a lot of bumps with his crew, a lot of bumps with the actors. Some people didn't really get his vision. Others thought that he wasn't properly directing. He was feeling a little uh, uh, standoffish at times. And then he was becoming like very depressed and very angry. He was closed off. He wasn't really expressing this with anyone. Of course, Lucas ended up needing more money to uh, finish the film because it was just expanding. It was taking too long. And everyone's starting to freak out. Executives were getting scared about the movie. Rumors were starting to circulate that this is going to be just this complete uh, bomb and terrible, terrible movie. And uh, Lucas was getting just so kind of like beat up and defeated in this process that even during the production, cast is on record saying that they tried to make Lucas laugh or smile because he was so depressed and it wasn't happening. And at one point, uh, at one point, Star Wars became like so hard and just demanding that Lucas was diagnosed with hypertension and exhaustion. And he was warned that he needed to reduce his stress levels or he's going to like die. I feel like I can empathize with that and not even have ever been close to that kind of stress. (laughs) No, it's crazy. And so you're at this like breaking point where just keep in mind, like he's in a different country. All these things are like flying at him and He's out of money and he's going over money and, and people are saying he's a failure. 
people are like, you are a complete failure. But George Lucas persevered. He had hope. He ended up getting a little bit more money and he finished the film. But then he entered post-production. And now in the post-production, he's essentially trying to create something that's never been done before with his special effects. So he's trying to do all these things and it's people are like, you can't do it. And he's like, you have to do it. He keeps trying to like figure out ways around, you know, problems. And he's asked, asking ILM, Industrial Light and Magic to like help him do certain things. And they're very open to it, of course, but it's still a big problem. And the first time he ends up screening the film for his friends and a few executives, everyone that was his director friends, with the exception of Steven Spielberg, said they didn't like the movie. They're like, wow. we don't like it. This is no good. Weirdly, a couple executives that saw it unfinished were like, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen, which was really weird. So he said he was like very confused about that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was a struggle to find the right music. Steven Spielberg hooked him up with John Lucas or John Williams, excuse me. And post-production was a problem. They were all like, it, it just, things were seemingly falling apart. It got so bad that when the movie was finally ready to come out, Lucas said, I can't be around for the premiere because it's going to bomb. I need to oh, get wow. the fuck out of here. So Lucas hops on a plane and goes to Hawaii with Steven Spielberg. And he's in Hawaii, gone, like staying away from everyone. And there's like a three-hour time change, right, in Hawaii? Is that what it is from the uh, Pacific time zone? Yeah. And so uh, he didn't even know how the film did for a while. He like slept in. He didn't even want to know what was happening uh, with the box office. And the movie comes out and it's a complete hit. And it kind of snuck in out of nowhere. So all of those things, all of the bad drafts, all of the bad production is to say George Lucas had hope and he persevered. And by the way, when he was in Hawaii, this is unrelated to hope, but I have to say this, talking to Steven Spielberg is when he came up with the idea, he pitched him the beloved Indiana Jones. Oh man. One last thing, unrelated fact, but very interesting. After visiting the set of uh, Star Wars, Steven Spielberg at the time was filming Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He was talking to George Lucas. Lucas was so sure that his film was going to be a bomb and Close Encounters was going to outperform it. And Spielberg completely disagreed. He believed that Star Wars was going to be the bigger hit. Lucas proposed that they trade 2.5% of the profits on each other's films. <gasps> Spielberg took the trade. And to this day, Steven Spielberg still receives 2.5% of the profits from Star Wars. No shit. And that, Tasha, is a story of hope. That's all I got. Dang. That's an extremely inspirational story. And I've definitely heard tidbits of it here and there, but I've never really heard, honestly, that much detail about it. Um, like some of the quotes and stuff that you have were pretty great. Um, yeah, it's... That is the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> I think the, the the most interesting part to me is that he himself thought... he He became convinced that... It was bad. Like all the other voices that were telling him it was bad just got to him. And he was like, it is going to be bad. And he still finished it anyways. And that to me yeah. is such an important lesson to just get something done and get it done to the best of your ability. And I feel like us as writers are never the best judge of our own our own work. We're, we're yeah. our harshest critics. And um, that definitely proved to be the case there. 
and totally empathize with his breakdown. <laughs> like, yeah, and that's absolutely. the thing too. Like, if you have a breakdown, everyone's had a breakdown. <laughs> like, you will get yeah. you will get through it. And I think that's such a great example of that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're spot on, right? He, everyone's telling him things suck. He thinks it sucks. He probably, obviously, didn't think it sucked at first. But then all the voices start getting to you. You start convincing yourself. You go to Hawaii because you're so sure what you made is going to be terrible. The movie's called A New Hope, for God's sake. Come on. <laughs> All right, Tasha, tell us a story of hope. <laughs> All right, my story of hope comes to us from Sylvester Stallone. It is the Rocky <laughs> story. Also a great story itself. The movie itself also about hope. Um, I've always found the, the, the making of Rocky to be a fantastically interesting story. I think because I can relate to so much about it <laughs> um so before rocky and this is also a, a famous story in our business so you may know some of these details but i still find it interesting that before rocky sylvester stallone was just absolutely poor just he was homeless for a period of time and he said he lived in an eight by eight room where he could literally open the window and shut the door at the same time without leaving his bed. <laughs> <laughs> but he said the benefit of that was that it allowed for absolutely no distractions. So really all he could do was write. And that's something that I often forget about uh, Sylvester Stallone, who I may or may not accidentally call Rocky while I do this. Right but <laughs> Stallone is a writer first. He, you know, still was going on auditions during this time and trying to act, but he was equally trying to write at the same time. And I think too, it's interesting about his experience being in a tiny room with no distractions is Aaron Sorkin talks about having like that same experience where he was super poor in New York. He was like couch surfing with a buddy and his buddy would go out on the town and Aaron had no money. So he just mm -hmm. stayed in and his buddy had a typewriter. And so he just started using it. So like having nothing, can oftentimes be a boon for some people. Absolutely. And also, let me just say, if you haven't seen Stallone's IMDb page about with his writing credits, I think you'd be shocked to be like, whoa, he wrote on this and this and this and he created this, this, this. It's, it's amazing. He's a fantastic writer. Rocky is such a well-written movie. Yeah. So Sly is incredibly poor. Uh, I read one story where actually it said that he did porn for a weekend in order to pay the bills. <laughs> Excuse me. And he himself had, had said that it was in that moment, it was either I have to sell my body or I have to rob a bank. Like that's how dire his situation was in that moment. And that porn okay. paid him $200 and that was just enough to get him to whatever that next thing was. So when I say he was poor, he was very poor. But really, he was also always writing. He said he always had his pen and his legal pad. He was always jotting down stories. And he himself admits that a lot of those stories were trivial. He just could not quite figure out how to articulate the stories he had in his heart. And those are actually his words, the story he had in his heart. That's how Stallone talks <laughs> about story, mm -hmm. which I, I was like all in on. Until in 1975, he goes to see a fight between Muhammad Ali and Chuck Wepner. And... Chuck Wepner was not expected to win. He was considered a very mediocre to below average fighter. And Muhammad Ali, as we already know, was considered even at that time to be the best fighting machine 
in the world. So this was expected to just be a total blowout. In fact, apparently Muhammad Ali, with extraordinary ego, said he did minimal training for the fight. <laughs> and when asked why, he said basically, like, look, my career has spanned 20 years because I didn't burn myself out training for guys like Chuck Wepner. So that's the, that's the mentality Ali has going into this fight. But early in the fight, Chuck Wepner got this side shot on Muhammad Ali just right in the ribs that knocked the champ down. And the crowd just goes crazy. When you watch the video of it, it's like complete shock. Ali, most of all, <laughs> like this guy that nobody cared about knocked the champ down. And Sly says to him, that was the turning point. He actually says, quote, that is probably what I need as a catalyst in thinking about his story. An idea, a man who's going to stand up to life and take one shot and maybe go the distance. And so I started to write, he said. And it was one of those writing frenzies. And three days later, I came up with the script of Rocky. So three, three days. days. Three days after watching this fight, he's 29 years old and Stallone just is so inspired by this, this idea of this guy who nobody believed in knocking the champ down inspired him to start writing this story. And he fully admits that, hey, look, the script was by no means finished when I did that first three-day draft. He said it was probably about 90 pages <laughs> and maybe 10% of it is actually what remained in the final script but it was done, he says, yeah. which again, we talk about that all the time, that the importance of just finishing it is really what you need to just even keep that momentum going and get to the next step. Now, interestingly about Rocky, this draft, he said his, he said his wife read it and hated it, <laughs> hated Rocky, the character itself, um, just said he was so angry, he was so dark, and uh, Stallone talks about how at this time, the anti-hero was kind of the, the all the rage. And so he he was trying to write what he thought people wanted to see and what he thought people would want to buy. And he realized that wasn't actually the story he wanted to tell or that he needed to tell. And it wasn't the root of his inspiration. So he went back and he rewrote it and he rewrote it. And he was just churning away at this. And in the meantime, he's taking auditions. And so he first met what the guys who would end up being the producers of Rocky at an acting audition and these guys went on to produce raging bull goodfellas these are big guys so he didn't get the job as an actor they didn't like him but as he's walking out the door he says he stops he got this crazy idea he turns around and he says hey you know i don't know if you guys care but i also do some writing and he very soft pitches them the basic idea of like a boxing story and they tell him all right like bring it around when you when you have it ready and Sly like talks about in his interviews to this day, like if I had not taken that chance and turned around and just mentioned that in the room, Rocky would have never happened. And so his first advice to writers is always like, don't give up. Like always speak up, you know, always. Yeah. Like always try and take your chance basically. Yeah. Wow. Which is like the theme of Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Like this, the whole process of Rocky feels like the theme of Rocky, <laughs> yeah. which similar, I think, to Star Wars, which is interesting and probably not coincidental that it comes from a like a real place in these people. So originally, everyone loved the script when they read it. Uh, the producers took it to United Artists who were like, great, let's find an A-list star for this. 
someone like Burt Reynolds, James Caan. These were the guys that they wanted, these big names. But Sylvester Stallone knew this opportunity is never going to come around again. And at the time, the famous story is that he was so poor that he sold his dog for $25 because he couldn't yeah. afford food for the dog. And he said he had $106 in the bank. His $40 car had just blown up. So he was taking the bus to work. And he said that he was so comfortable with poverty and he knew that he could live that life that when they started throwing money at him, all these numbers of like, hey, take this huge paycheck and we'll put another actor in this role and we'll give you so much money. You'll, you know, you'll live off this hog forever. Um, but he's like, I was so comfortable with poverty that I knew it was more important for me to be in this movie than to take this, you know, 300 something thousand dollar check, which to me was a really interesting part of his story, because in my mind, I could just imagine all of the people in his life probably telling him, you're fucking crazy not to take this $300,000 when you have $100 in the bank. And mm -hmm. I think I read one story where he had a, a kid on the way. So really, this is actually very irresponsible of him, if you think about it. <laughs> um, but that's the advice he's probably getting from everyone is take the money. But I think as we talk a lot about in this podcast, your gut kind of can lead the way. And his gut was like, no, I, I have to take this role. And so when Stallone insisted on being in the title role, United Artists was like, okay, this thing is going to fail, which is similar to Star Wars in a way. They're kind of prepping for this movie to bomb. And they mm -hmm. only gave him a $1 million budget, which today that's considered very micro budget, right? One to five billion is kind of a micro budget movie, $1 million, which meant that their production schedule had to be extremely tight. They had to move really, really fast. And I think honestly, the rest is kind of history. Like yeah. <laughs> Rocky ended up being the highest grossing film of 1976. And I think in kind of studying up about the making of Rocky, it's interesting because it kind of continues to be, even during production, this story of going against all odds, of wanting to give up, but forcing yourself to push forward and ends up being a really great example of hope. I think like one story that he kept telling was that like <laughs> the stuff about him, stuff that I actually remember the most where he's just like running until he's ragged, where he's just like, I'm, I'm going to train like no one's ever trained before and just push myself and push myself and push myself. Those are some of the most memorable character moments, I think, in, in Rocky. And those mm -hmm. were actually a lot of that was improv. And so the director would just kind of randomly see a setting and like force Stallone to get out of the car and just start running as fast as he could. And so would be like, my legs are buckling. I feel like I'm going to die. He's coming home bruised at the end of shoots. He's so achy that he can't get any sleep from all this running and this punching. And so he's kind wow. of complaining left and right. But the director's like, look, this is going to make your character more complex. Just go out there and fucking do it. <laughs> and he does. And a, a lot of those running scenes that you see in the movie are actually improv scenes. But it creates this kind of never give upness that's so, I think, it, it's so memorable in the movie. It's, it's my biggest yeah. takeaway. So that to me is also its own interesting lesson. So that's, that's my great. Rocky story. No, that's amazing. I feel like... Yeah, anyone can relate to that. That's great. <laughs> I, we're going to kind of talk about our own personal stories with hope now and of losing hope. So I'm just going to dive right in because I feel like 
while I've never been quite homeless, I have lived in a tent before. <laughs> um, Wait, you lived in a tent outside or inside? So when I first moved to LA, I was too poor to get an apartment. And so I lived in a tent with my boyfriend at the time, right outside of my dad's motorhome because he lives in like a at the time he lived in a trailer park kind of area in Newport Beach and so I, I just like set up a tent outside his motorhome and that's where I lived for a little bit before I got a job oh, okay. that's awesome. <laughs> not quite homeless not quite homeless that's an adventure right there yeah that's an adventure <laughs> but when I you know worked as an assistant in this business and kind of coming up I had an apartment I had a roof over my head but that was pretty much it and you definitely come to these moments where you see other people in your family or other friends from high school who not only have great jobs, but they've bought a house by now. They have kids and their house is beautiful on Facebook. And you're just like, what the hell am I doing? Is this practical? Is this irresponsible? Like kind of Sylvester Stallone not taking the $300,000 when he has a kid on the way. Yeah. You have moments you're like, what the fuck am I doing? And you keep doing it anyways, whether it's responsible or not. But I've definitely seen a lot of writers along the way, like coming up at the same time, we have the same journey, and they fall away and they go into other businesses, which is fine. But they felt they had to do that in order to have the life of comfort that they that they wanted and deserved. Um, but that's the thing that I sort of really relate to with the Rocky story is that there were a lot of moments where I felt like I really had to give up and take a better job be a strong, like a more suitable human, adult human, um, but didn't. And I was an assistant for four years at Universal. And there's so many times where I'd get phone calls from people like producers who were calling in and who were kind of friends of my boss. And they'd be like, you're still there. Why are you still mm -hmm. there? Yeah. <laughs> you're how old and you're still there? And oh, you want to be a writer? Well, why don't you just write? It's like, well, you should know that it's not just that easy. It's, it's a process. Yeah. It's hard. And there are so many times where like you, Josh, would have to walk me off a ledge. Writers group would have to walk me off a ledge. My mom would have to walk me off a ledge where I just didn't think I could I could do this job um, that I couldn't I could never get out of my day job and actually write for a living. It was just never going to happen. And now I'm show running a show. So that that sort of never give up this that stick to itiveness that both of our stories are really symbols of I think feel sort of like stories of the gods <laughs> like Stallone yeah. can do it George Lucas could do it but it, it's a really practical thing that I think you can embody and that can really push you forward in the most trying times of your life and I think the trying times are normal at least they were for me no, yeah, it's like you can't have the sweet without the sour. Like you have to have those trying times. Otherwise, it's like, but that, that I mean, that's well said. I guess I was trying to pinpoint exactly when I've lost hope. I don't know if there was like multiple specific or if there was a specific time. But very, very similar to you, there's been many times where I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? And strangely enough, I took a job as a, creative executive at like this independent film company and it was then where i was kind of like suit and tie guy that which i never that's not me like at all i think that was kind of like the what am i doing with myself i need to kind of like do something a little bit more serious and so i took that job and i did not like it at all you know 
I mean, of course, there are certain things I liked about it, but I just wasn't myself. And I, I could like see myself losing myself, if that makes any sense. And it like, you know, so. What's interesting about that time in your life, because I knew you during that time, was that you never talked about your job. Yeah, ever. I just like you never. It was like a you considered it almost like a different part of you. And then there was the writing part, which was like the real part. <laughs> yeah, it was insane. Like it was such a conscious decision to just completely stop dealing with that in my life where I was like, I, I don't even want to talk about it. And I remember thinking to myself at one point, like, okay, this is a problem. Like, who am I? Like, what am I? What am I doing with myself? Like, it's hard because I don't want to say it was like a complete loss of hope, but it definitely, you kind of start losing yourself. And when you start recognizing that, I feel like that's the first path to kind of losing, yeah, your hope eventually. How did you pull yourself out of it when you were feeling that at that company? You know what it was? It was that it, I, I, I started to figure out like when I could write and how I could function at the, at the company and also, um, while doing my own thing. And I, I, I started to get a healthy balance, but mm -hmm. it still wasn't, it was still there. It was always there, but I would always justify like, okay, well I have this job, but I'm able to write. And by the way, I, that's, anyone's everyone's personality is different like i get like a little over emotional about things and i'm like this is not who i am i am out <laughs> and so you know other people are much better uh can handle themselves better than i can but um i don't know how i pulled myself out of it but i can tell you that when i left it was as like like this billion pound weight was lifted off of my shoulder yeah and uh, shoulders and it was weird and with not knowing like really what you're doing, but just knowing that you have to make a change. Yeah. We actually have a mutual friend who's also a writer who just left his job as well, like a very well-paying, very good job by all accounts. But he did it because he felt the same exact way you did. And it wasn't who he was. And he wanted to write full time. And I think he just you know, saved and planned out when he was going to quit the job so that, you know, he had money for the next few months or whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, he, he quit his job to write full time. And he, I think, feels the same way. It's just this huge weight that's been lifted off because it feels like you're finally doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And it sounds crazy because from the outside, you can say, hey, man, we're we're just like we're in a pandemic. We uh, things aren't great right now. And what the hell are you doing? But that person, when you know, you know, you're like, no, I can't do this anymore. It's like a toxic relationship. Yeah. I think for me, part of what drove me in my hopeless moments was knowing I couldn't do anything else and be happy. Mm. Like I can do, I could do administrative jobs. I've had many other jobs in my life, but none of them made me happy. I was always doing what you were talking about, which is you're kind of miserable at your day job. And then you're just trying to find time to write in all your free time. and that's just the wrong balance in, in life that you want. You want that to be flipped, right? Yeah. So I think even, and oftentimes would cry at night after a really long day, at, you know, because when you work as an assistant in Hollywood, it's usually a 12-hour day minimum, and that gives you very little time to write, and you just feel like you're going to be trapped in this system forever. And there are a lot of rough times, months, weeks that would go on, but you sort of have to keep remembering that, this is literally the only thing that you love and want to do yeah. and are good at. <laughs> also, I, I mean, this kind of transitions us into the last section of our show, which is kind of tips and tricks to do when you have lost hope. And I think something that really worked for me was 
reading other people's stories like this, like like George Lucas, like Rocky, and realizing that I wasn't alone in the in the feelings of hopelessness or the feelings of loss and inability to do what I want to do with everything stacked against you. And they persevered anyways. Because I think a big problem that we all have is that we can look around and see other people succeeding and we start to tell ourselves stories about that. Like, I'm not good enough or other people are getting opportunities because they're lucky and I'm unlucky. And look at me, I'm just so unlucky. And we tell ourselves, hey, they must have something that I don't and I'll never be like them. And if I haven't made it yet, then I'm never going to make it. That was a big one for me because I was kind of older. I was an older assistant at the time. Like Everyone was younger than me. They were all out of college and I had lived a life and then became an assistant. (laughs) 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 So I think there are all these self-judgments that we've all had, but reminding myself, hey, those are just stories that go on in my brain and they're not actually facts. And I think two ways that I know this with a bit more experience was that when I did get my first break and was able to leave Universal and write full time, there was a deadline article about the the movie that I was going to be writing or the deal that I had made rather. And it was interesting because at that point I had been working since graduate school. So that would have been six, uh, 10 years. I'd been working 10 years trying to start my career at that point. And all of the comments in the deadline article were all, all from people I didn't know. They were all like, oh, this girl had it easy. She worked at Universal. She had So she had a way in. Like, why don't they ever give these opportunities to people who are like really working hard? And wow. I was like, whoa, like these people... I totally get it because that's often like my how I go into reading certain deadline articles about people who are like suddenly spelling selling their spec for a million dollars. I'm like, God damn it. Like, I will never be that way. Like that person didn't even work for it. It's their first ever script. But it may say it's their first ever script in the deadline article, but it could be their 20th script. And they've been working on, you know movies in some capacity or working on scripts in some capacity for a really long time. You just don't know. And so being on the other side of it, it was a big eye opener for me, I think. <laughs> did you want to respond to any of the comments? <laughs> no, but my mom did. I was like, mom, you can't be doing oh, that. <laughs> I remember this. I think yeah. I remember this. Oh, amazing. That's what moms are for. Yeah. <laughs> Among other things. I, that's not only what moms barrier. Are for. Don't yeah, talk to my baby like that. <laughs> they're, they're to step in and, and help you out. That's yeah. amazing. Anyway, hope. You have to have it. Never lose it. As far as tips and tricks of what to do when you have lost hope, I think... Oh, that's right. (laughs) I think um, a big one for me as well is just take a break because you may just be burnt out. You know, loss of hope is the same as depression, really, or can be. Mm -hmm. And um, it just means your brain is tired. You need to give yourself a break figuratively and probably literally. Yeah. And you know what? It's also very helpful to just put things in perspective and step back. And if you are one of the fortunate ones who doesn't have a health issue and isn't in a situation that's maybe abusive or whatever, and your life is pretty good, you know, and you just, if you have like a job where you go home, go to bed, you write, you eat, you have food on your table, 
that's a really important thing. And I think when, if you can just kind of put that in perspective, because in a way that's like, that's a mental barrier that a lot of people, they don't have that, you know, comfort. And so even during all this, you know, it's like, if someone's asked, how's it going? Something like that. I've been healthy. Like, that's it. That's all I care about. There's people out here who aren't healthy. And it's like, if you have that, that's all the hope you need, really. It's like, come on. I agree. That's beautiful. Tasha, as a as a wise man, once kind of said to me that I formed it into my own thing is, you can't let these things affect you. You have to affect the things. <laughs> Maybe vaguely Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> may or may not have come out of Aaron Rodgers' mouth on a podcast, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> Another tip and trick that I can think of is to watch a movie or a TV show that really inspires you to remind you why you're doing this. Absolutely. So I'll go watch Ever After or Harry Potter. <laughs> Those are my go-tos. And then just read up about the people. Read about the writers. Read about the director because there's like a 99.9% .9 chance that there's going to be some kind of like struggle along the way. 100%. Like just going online and thinking about this episode and, and who we might talk about and highlight for kind of examples of hope. Any number of people we could have landed on who are extremely famous. Walt Disney, yeah. John Lasseter, J.K. Rowling, yeah. Stephen King, James Cameron, James. were you going to say? I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. These guys had a really hard time achieving their dreams and they still did it. So that actually we have a whole series of notebooks in the Act 2 store. This is not a shameless plug, I swear. Um, mm -hmm. That is actually just rejection letters that are sent mm -hmm. to famous writers and artists because rejection is real. And I think it's hard to remember that rejection is not a measure of how talented you are, which maybe doesn't seem to be, make sense to you in the moment. But when you remember that everyone passed on Star Wars, everyone passed on Harry Potter, everyone told Stallone he'd never be a star, I think. The difference is those people that we're talking about did not believe the rejection. And I think that's the attitude that it takes to be a screenwriter because you're going to get a lot of rejection and hope is hard. If it were easy, everyone would do it. Yeah. Can I ask, why has this episode been such a push for you? Why do you, why do you keep wanting to do this episode? I really, I feel like so often whenever I have conversations with writers there's always like this gray area where there's someone's always hoping for something to happen, you know? And if you kind of like boil down, Oh, I have my script here. I have this, hopefully this, ha you know, hopefully this, hopefully that. Mm -hmm. And we really do operate from a place of hope so often. And it really is like, I think about it all the time. And obviously that theme just always sticks with me because of what you just said is like this idea of someone being able to, you know, go from, no money and you're you're kind of like pitching a tent with a boyfriend somewhere and you're trying to get to where you want to be and then before you know it you're living in los angeles you're running a show and you kind of ask little tasha hey if you could paint your perfect dream what would it be and you're like living the dream right now and so that's it's like poetic to me and i love it and i love hearing this kind of stuff and even talking to people who now have like been planted in la for 10 years who come from the midwest and you're like wow I never thought I was going to make it out here. We were fucking broke and now we're here and it's like, this is where you want to be. And it's all about having the hope and just sticking with it. And I love it. That's why I love hope. <laughs>
It's the land of dreams. Yeah. All right. I, I feel love good. It, right. I'm going to go right All after right. this. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> All right. I'm going to take us out with a very appropriate quote of the day. I take rejection as someone blowing a bugle in my ear to wake me up and get going rather than retreat. Sylvester Stallone. And may I say you laugh every time I quote Stallone on this podcast. And hopefully you will no longer do that. But maybe not. <laughs> I think it's the way you're like, Sylvester Stallone. Like, because it's, it's so like... surprising, but so awesome. <laughs> it is very surprising, actually. He's a poet. You know, he talks about in interviews uh, how he really related to the character of Rocky because Rocky is the kind of guy who walks down the street and people underestimate him. They look at him and think, oh, this guy's based on his build. He's kind of a bully. He looks like a dark figure. He's dangerous. And uh, I feel like we do the same thing to Sly, real life Sly. We look at him and yeah. we think, oh, this guy's just a you know, a meathead. What does he know? And he's yeah. actually a fantastic writer and very thoughtful yeah, as a writer. A great director. Indeed. All, All right. right. Anyways, please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act2Writers for just more awesome writing stuff. And you can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. And you can follow Josh on Twitter <laughs> at Joshua Hallman and on Instagram at Josh Hallman. <laughs> And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, which is a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Bag, which you can find on Spotify. Spotify.